0: I want you to open your Bible tonight the book of John, chapter 14. Last week, on a Wednesday night, I spoke about, Lord, thank you for your word. If you were here, you remember that, Acts 32, all the things the word does for us and how the word that God has given us not only brings us divine information, but also when applied, you're blessed for doing it. He rewards you for that. You cannot, as a Christian, walk very long with the Lord without realizing that one of the wonderful things we are thankful for as Christians is the Word of God, because it leads us on a journey that is eternal. Now, tonight, I want to talk about, Lord, thank you for your spirit, because that's a little more controversial in Christian circles. It is to some people. It's not to me, but... It is in a lot of ways to a lot of people, but I want to thank the Lord tonight and speak on this for a while tonight about, Lord, thank you for your spirit. Now, there's no way to do justice to what I just said in one evening, and I'm not going to make two or three meetings out of this. I'm just going to highlight a few things of the many things the Bible says concerning the Holy Spirit, how he relates to us, what he does how he does it, and the effect of what he does. There's a lot in the Bible about the Holy Spirit. As I remember when I first got saved back in the last century, I remember it wasn't long after we got saved that we heard about the Holy Spirit. I knew about the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. I never paid much attention to it until after I got saved and began hearing things about it that I had never heard before. I'd never listened before, but I'd never heard it the way I heard it. And then it stimulated my thinking and began to give me something to think about. And then people would say things about the Holy Spirit. I'd listen to the Christian radio station, back then I did, and I would hear some preachers talk about it. And I think, what's he talking about? What's this all about? Then begin to ask questions to my Friends in the church about the Holy Spirit, and most of them were vague in their response. Really, didn't know much about it. Like me, had only heard things about it and wasn't too sure about what they heard. Since I began to investigate more and more about it, I found myself getting filled with the Holy Spirit. I spoke in new tongues, and I realized then that this was quite a controversial subject. Because many of the people that I hung around when I got saved were Baptists and Methodists. We had our little group of people in our revival movement that summer in Charlestown, Indiana, where I grew up a bunch of us. just sort of met once a month in, in a church and fellowshiped and talked about what we were doing. And, and I realized then that what had happened to me was not something they were too happy with. And I remember, though, at the time what was going on in my own life, and I thought, well, what's wrong? Later on, as I began to grow, I realized that most people don't know too much about it because if there's something that may be controversial, the less you know about it, the more you can use as an excuse, well, I don't know that much about it, then you can quit talking about it. But for some of us, there's more to it than you want to know what everything means. I do. I want to know what things mean so I can at least know what I'm talking about, I convince myself that I do. And so, as I've lived in this, what they call a Holy Spirit inspired life for the last 40 plus years, uh, you learn a few things. And you learn there are things you should be thankful for. Things that the Holy Spirit is directly involved in and things that he orchestrates or causes to come to pass. In our text here, if you found it by now, he said, In verse 16, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Let me just bring out a few things. Some of this is pretty theological. We don't consider it that way, but if you study it, it gets that way. You know, another comforter. Well, who was the first comforter? Well, he was talking about himself, wasn't he? Somebody who is called alongside to a help. And he said, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter comforter, that may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. Then he said these words, but you know him. Who is the him he's talking about here? The spirit of truth. He said, you know him, for he abides with you and shall be in you Now if he abides with you and shall be in you and as he abides with you you know him if he's with you and you know him but he shall be in you I need you to clear that up I don't know what you're talking about If he had said I am with you I will be in you and while I am with you as to comfort you and to and to watch over your lives and to guide and direct you I will be in you doing the same thing, only in a different dimension. But he didn't say it quite that way and they didn't fully understand it and like many Christians today, I don't think do. But he said, he shall be in you. The truth is Jesus could not physically, in a physical form, be with his people wherever they were on the earth at one time. He couldn't do that. In a physical, seeable, visible body is either here or there or there or wherever. But if he can be in you spiritually, if his spirit can be in you, then no matter where you are, he is. Now, that's not easy for a mind to understand how can this be. When you begin to realize, Jesus said, you know, God is spirit. He's not a spirit. He is spirit. A spirit you know, might be here, a spirit might be there, but God as spirit has no limitations to where he is. He is omnipresent because there's nowhere he has to go to be there. He is there at all times, whether it's way out there or way down there. He's always there because he is spirit. And Jesus, the Bible teaches us, Hebrews 1, he is a visible manifestation or representation of the invisible God. When you see me, he said, you've seen the Father. I'm sure that didn't register well with him either. I mean, I'm supposed to look at you and be looking at God? He said, this is what God made man in the image of, isn't it? You cannot make a clay form out of spirit that looked like spirit because Jesus said, spirit hath not flesh and blood. So when you made man in the image of God, he had to look like, well, he looked like us. He certainly wasn't a monkey or a crow magnon man running around in somewhere in Europe. When he made him, he looked like us. What about all them bones and skulls they're finding all over these hillsides? You know, God could have put them there just to let man who thinketh himself to be wise in the end become a fool. He finds a little wing or finds a tooth and makes a man out of it, turns out to be a pig. Pilt down man, but that's another story. But Jesus, in order to be everywhere his people are, there has to be something changed. He said, now, I'm going to the Father. When I get to the Father, I'm going to send the Comforter. You know him. He's with you now. But he shall be in you. We asked the question, wonder why he wasn't in there all the time anyway. I mean, he was with them. Why wasn't he already in them? Because essentially man was unclean. The Spirit of God throughout the Old Testament, you know, the people were said to be filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean that the Spirit of God inhabited people, but the Spirit of God equipped people like Gideon, Samson, King Saul, a couple of others were said to be filled with the Spirit, and as such they did something. And it was like a momentary anointing to accomplish something. That's what the filling was about. There are times that us, you know, when we rise up in the midst of something and God fills us with the Spirit and we, we prophesy or we do something or healing takes place. But it was different then than it is in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus said, I'm going to go to the Father and something's going to happen that's never happened before on this earth. It'll begin on the day of Pentecost. Because prior to Pentecost, after my resurrection, I'm going to visit you. Remember that when he appeared in the upper room in Luke chapter 24? Luke chapter 24 and John chapter 20 are talking about the post resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples. Now they were in a the room, they were scared, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Remember the story? And Jesus appears. He just comes in the room and in that time of talking to them and showing them his hands and his side, remember in John 20 and verse 22 said he breathed on them and he did something that had never been done to any human before. He said, receive the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit. And so when he said, receive the Holy Spirit, is that when they receive the Holy Spirit? That's what he said, didn't it? Receive the Holy Spirit. But then he said in Luke chapter 24 and verse 49, he said, now you who have had this happen, you tarry in the city of Jerusalem until I send the promise of my Father upon you. He said, I'm going to send the promise of my Father upon you who have just been breathed upon. And when the Spirit comes... You shall receive power. We'll get to that in a minute. So the reason this hadn't happened before, no doubt, is because they didn't qualify. I mean, if you're a vessel that has never been born again, then there's nothing divine going to be lodged inside that vessel. You could be called alongside. You could be called gods. He could temporarily hold you to his own. You could offer sacrifices and be acceptable to God, but until something different happened to man, there would never be an indwelling of divinity in an unclean vessel. But now when a man was born again, which is our first point, thank you, Jesus, when a man was born again, something happened. He didn't get a new mind. He didn't get a new brain. His face didn't change. His bodily appearance didn't change. His health, hes the same person when he was born again on the outside visibly. But what happened to him? Something happened on the inside, didn't it? He put his spirit in us. God himself came to dwell within the heart of a human being. That makes him present wherever we're present. Wherever I am, he is. I can go nowhere he's not. Wherever he leads me, he's there, and he's in there by his spirit. And Remember, John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, he said, he will baptize you with what? Say the Holy Ghost and fire. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. I baptize with water, but when he comes, he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. And the Holy Spirit, his work on this earth, was to convict you of your sins. And when he did, made you see your need for a savior. He did all of that kind of work. This is the work of the spirit, bring conviction of sin. We'll get to that in a minute. This is his work. I'm thankful for all this. I mean, this is why I'm here. Showed me the nature of my sin in my life and how loathsome I must have been to God. All of my shenanigans and tomfoolery and ignorance and dumbness and all my abominable ways. It made me aware of that he didn't have to. God doesn't have to save anybody, but he chose to do this. And he made me aware of that, and I began to, to weep, and I realized, Godly sorrow brings repentance. I asked God to forgive me, and he did. And then John the Baptist said, now he who saves, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, children of God. But he said, You'll receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you to make your sonship effective. So here I am in the upper room. Now turn to John 7. Put your finger back here in John 14 if you want to. John chapter 7, verse 36. It was a great feast that they were at. It says in John 7 and verse 2, it was the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the third feast that they had to attend. All the males in Israel were required to come to Jerusalem three times a year for three holy convocations. And these convocations were also festival days. They had a lot of pageantry in them. I mean, there was a lot of things we see that typified Christ in all of these things. They start with with Passover and, and, and the Passover thing, and then there was Pentecost, and they went through that, and then they come to this Feast of uh, Tabernacles, which is usually referred to as the feast of the ingathering. It came at the end of the harvest season when all the crops were in, the people were able to bring their, their tithe and their fruits to the Lord in Jerusalem. But it was a great festival day. It lasted seven days, and on this eighth day, and by the way, when they when they celebrated this feast of tabernacles, some of them call it the Feast of Booths, they would make Little makeshift homes. They'd put sticks and limbs together and make a little hut. And they lived in those things for seven days. And it was to remind them of the way it was when they were slaves in Egypt and they came out of there and they went through the desert, and that's the way they had to live. So it was commemorating all of that, but it was a fun time because they knew they'd been delivered from it. So for seven days, this is what they did they didn't eat leavened bread, it was a feast of tabernacles. And on the eighth day, it's not that God commanded this, but it became a tradition. On the eighth day, the priest, the high priest, would go down to the pool of Siloam. I think we've seen that it. It's way down at the bottom, and they say it runs under the temple. Now, I've just taken what somebody else said. And he would take a pitcher, like a golden pitcher, a very sacred vessel to them, and he would come to the temple mount, and all the trumpets were blaring and carrying on, And on this great day, they had the burnt offering there, and the priest would go up to the altar and would pour that water from the pool of Siloam on the sacrifice. And the people would sing from Isaiah 12 about Isaiah 12 in verse 3, with joy, shall we draw waters out of the wells of salvation. And they would sing that, and it was a great, glorious time of remembrance of what the Lord had done for them, just like for us we look at those things that pointed to Jesus, and we remember what he's done for us. During that festival time, verse 36, Jesus had said he cried out. There must have been quite a crowd there. And he said, verse 30, Jesus, on that great day of the feast, stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But, verse 39, this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because he was not yet glorified. Now, let me ask you a question. When was Jesus glorified? Now, we know he's always God in human flesh. He's talking about when he was glorified. When was that? The resurrection. He was restored to the glory of his father. Remember, he humbled himself, became the servant of man, and he was restored. Jesus talked about being restored back to the glory of his father. Peers in the upper room said, it happened. I am he. What I said, now you know works. It's true. Because everything I told you is true. He said, here, look at me. This is who I am. And their lives were so changed from that moment on, they never went back. None of them did. And he breathed on them. I think it typifies when God made Adam a living soul. He breathed on him the breath of life, because the words spirit and breath are the same word in both Hebrew and Greek. And Jesus breathed his holy and divine, resurrected, glorified breath on human beings. And I do believe that something happened then and they were changed. But he said to them, you tarry here until I send the promise of my father upon you. And on that day, remember the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And we know he did. We know it was a distinct New Testament experience, never experienced before, because a room full of people heard a sound come from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, like, what is going on? And then there were cloven tongues of fire that rested on the heads of these people. This was the way God did it. They just begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It doesn't say unknown tongues. They spoke in languages that people around them could understand. They just heard them speaking in their own dialect. Still a gift. It's just divers kinds, a different way they did. Because there's also tongues of angels as well as tongues of men. But anyway, they begin to do that. Remember Peter said in the last part of Acts chapter 2, he said, whoever's believing is baptized, he said, shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. See, so see, there was something here about it, but it begins with us being born again. You don't just get the Holy Ghost without being born again. You've got to be born again. You have to be a changed person. I don't know that everybody that says they've been born again have been born again, because when you look at what examples typifies a newborn person, they're not just status quo or natural the way they used to be. They, they change. You got your finger, John? Look in Ezekiel. If you can find Ezekiel, to the middle, to the right. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. This is what God says. This is what God is going to do. This is what... The man in John chapter three, who was the man in John chapter three that Jesus said, you mean you don't teach the Jews and you don't understand this? What was his name? Nicodemus. Remember he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He said, how can I go back in my mother's belly and be born again? He had naturally thinking about it. He didn't see the spiritual, what Jesus was saying in the spirit. But he said, you should know this if you're a teacher of the Jews, because it is in the Old Testament what it's about. I don't think they had been. I think they would be. I think Jesus had to die first for any man's sins to be forgiven. I do. I do believe there's a reason for Abraham's bosom and what that means. And the saints that were there until in Matthew 27, after his resurrection, Jesus came and delivered them to heaven. Led captivity captive, the Bible said. I believe that the death of Jesus was necessary to the forgiveness of any man's sins. I think they could be covered over in the Old Testament sacrifices, but they're never removed. They're never gone. Prophesied and predicted, and they were told what would happen, but I don't think they ever happened until Jesus shed his blood. If all men, if the Old Testament, all men, all we like sheep have gone astray, and there's none righteous, not one, then nobody was good enough to go to heaven. God was able to choose men who related to him, and he called them his own. But a day of deliverance came, I believe, when Jesus, when he said on the cross, it is finished, it was finished. It was done for those folks, it's done for us. All we have to do is believe it, make application of it, and it's ours. Now, he said here, this is what happens when you're born again. I believe this. He said, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Remember Jesus said in 1 John 2? that you must be born of the water and the Spirit. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. Clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now, filthiness and inward idols, that's what we all were. How would the Holy Spirit dwell in that? Are you with me? You got to cleanse it. You got to make it suitable for the Lord to come in. He's not going to dwell there with something like that. So he's going to make you a brand new down here. Now, your head in there, you got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and so forth. But he said, He said, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. Now notice verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. Whose spirit are we talking about? God. Is Jesus the comforter? Well then, is he God? Because he's the one that's going to come in. Jesus said, I will pray the Father and he will sin. Then Jesus said, I will go to heaven, I will send." Talking about one God who has chosen to reveal himself in three different ways. One God, not two gods, not two and a half, one. And that's just the way we see it. And he said, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and you shall do them. And then he said, you shall dwell in the land, you shall be my people, I'll be your God. Let me ask you all a question. When a man receives God's Spirit, what happens to him? He becomes a church member. No. That's religion. What happens to a man who receives the Spirit of the Almighty God in his body? He changes. Can you measure a man with this? Can we measure ourselves and and ask ourselves, is this me? You see, don't make it hard. I'm not trying to make it hard. I'm trying to make it personal. I don't want you to assume anything. You don't get to heaven by assumption. You get to heaven because you believe and you're persuaded about what you believe. He said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and you'll do what I said. That's how we know. And to just... Flippantly say, well, I've been born again because you went forward in a church service, you got baptized in water, now you're in your seat, and your life is no different afterwards than it was before. I do not believe you were born again. I have a right to believe that. Should I not expect you and me, all of us, if we say we're born again, to evidence it? Things have got to change. Some of us change easier than others do. I know that. Some of us change in a different way than others do, but we must believe that what God has done will be evidenced by the way we live. He said, I will cause you to live a life you never lived before. I will cause you to live a life that good old boys or the natural man cannot live. I will cause you to receive my word that worldly people can't receive. Jesus said that in John 14. Didn't he say that the world cannot receive this? As long as a man is in the world, he can't receive this. He can memorize it. He can talk about it. He can teach it. You can preach it. But if you've got it, it'll be evidenced by life. You shall know them by what? By their fruits. Jesus said, remember in John chapter 3 and verse 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Think of that. Except a man is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom. Now, here we are, lost people in this world. And here's a loving and a gracious God wanting to save us. But he does it in a special, unique way. He doesn't appear to us visibly. We don't see him work a miracle and then go, oh, I want to do it. It's a spiritual thing now. Something stirs within us we can't fully identify. We can't understand all this, but something is going on in my heart. I'm aware of my sinful state or my sinful thoughts or my sinful activities or my sinful ideas or my woeful indifference to God. It bothers me, it never bothered me before. What's going on? Is this not the work of God himself by his spirit? He moves amongst you. He begins to remind you of things in your past. You can't even rest. You can't get away from it. Drugs don't really work for this. More girlfriends don't change anything. You can't do a thing about it in the natural except harden your heart to it, and then it'll go away, and you won't ever be bothered again with conviction. But this is what the Holy Spirit does to bring us to himself. Jude said, some, some save with fire. Pour it on. You know what I mean. Preach the word. Identify sin as sin. Don't lollygag around. Say what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. Men don't marry men. Women don't marry women. There's no tolerance of that. We don't just get along with that. I mean, it's just there are things that you say that are true, and they're hated by the world. But the Bible says the world can't receive any of this. And any time the world approves of us and wants to say kind things about us, something's wrong with us. Because there's such a difference between the nature of death and the nature of life. They don't mix. And when they can mingle together and get along with each other, then it's no longer Christianity. It's wheat and tares. Well, the wheat's good, of course, but it's, it's not good. When the Bible said, preach the word, be in season and out of season, what do you mean? Say the truth. Don't turn from it to the left. Don't play favorites. Don't play that, well, we're loving pe-. J- Just speak the truth in love. You're going to offend somebody always. I mean, somebody's going to be offended. Quit trying to make people like you. Quit trying to make people get along with you. Quit trying to make people, oh, I'm not so bad. You speak in what well you know, tell him God didn't give you something for you to hide it under a bushel you don't have to go out on a street corner on Saturday afternoon and blow your trumpet on the corner either you just live you just live the life it's what the Holy Spirit has brought us into It's what he's given to us if you've been born again, you're born of the spirit that which is born of the flesh is flesh John three six and that which is born of the spirit. Is spirit. How many of you have been born twice? If you're born twice, you only die once. If you're only born once, you're going to die twice. Think about it. The new birth is when First Corinthians talks about we become the temple of God, the tabernacle, another place of God. We are the house that God has chosen to put his divine spirit in. In. We may have trouble admitting that the Almighty God lives in us. But you have to admit it if that's what he said. Now, second thing that we give thanks to God for is his empowering. Turn to Acts 1. He said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, And being assembled together with them. Now Luke wrote Luke 24. This is Luke continuing to write here. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you have heard of me. Verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And then verse 8. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, as a Christian, as a born again belonging to God, name in the land, book of life, Christian. Nothing added to this. Not the Holy Ghost. Just as, as a newborn Christian, my next step is to be empowered. I don't want to be religious and just take my seat and do church things. I want to live on his level. There's a way God wants me to live, and it's not ordinary, and it's not normal. It's super normal, supernatural. It's something that comes from heaven. Nobody can manufacture it, nobody can make it happen. It's something that only God does. It is when God chooses to put his spirit inside of you to empower you. And you say, well, what are we talking about here? Well, what he said in Acts chapter 1 in verse 8, you're born again. No question with that. But he said when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to be empowered. What does he mean empowered? Power to do what? What's the one thing he mentions? Power to do what? To be a what? A witness, help me out now. Witness is somebody who declares what they've seen or heard. You know what it is in a court of law. A witness testifies to what they know, what they have seen, what they have heard, and that's as far as they can go. And Jesus said, your your relationship with me will give you something to talk about, to testify to. Everybody has their own unique experience. I've had mine, you have yours. We weren't all born again the same way. We weren't all filled with the Spirit the same way. But we've all had our own unique experiences. You may think you don't know much, and I don't, you know, I'm not very good in the Word, and I don't know many verses. Tell them what happened to you. It's your story. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to be compelled to do that. Something's going to stir in you like a mighty rushing wind. And you're going to know that there's something here from God. Witness also comes from the Greek word martus, from which we get the English word martyr. That puts a different definition on what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Because this is kind of the way I see it in the big picture. When the Holy Spirit comes, he said he's going to make a martyr out of you. What you learn, what you're seeing, and what you know, you're willing to lay your life down for the truth of it. The disciples did every one of them. They loved not their lives to the death. They were not afraid to die. If they had any fear at all, it was a fear they weren't serving the Lord the way he wants them to. For there's this power of the Holy Spirit that came upon them. And there was this resignation in their lives, in their hearts, to honor the Lord by serving him as to their fullness. Their, their understanding opened up. They begin to see things they couldn't see before. It's interesting that when people first get filled with the Holy Spirit, almost always they right away believe in divine healing. And then right after that, it's about deliverance. And then getting cleansed from the occult in your life of things that are dark things in your life that have been hanging around. I mean, this follows all of this. You realize that if we had not been filled with the Holy Spirit, we not only would not be here, we would have had no reason to leave wherever we were to come here. We wouldn't have wanted any more. You got to ask yourself, where did this urge in me, where is this thing that compels me to want more? It's from the Holy Spirit. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. Take you to the outer limits where you're not afraid anymore. He, by his spirit, delivers you from all your fears. Your life is not even your own anymore. It doesn't belong to you. It's not your concern. That's why he said, don't take any thought, even for your life. I bought you with the price, Jesus said. You're my property. I have chosen to put my life inside of you. I'm in there. I don't want you to hold me back. And if I want to take you to the jaws of death or the church in Revelation said in a few days, they're going to put you to death, but be faithful and you'll overcome. Remember that? Well, they said, fine, we'll be glad to die for the Lord. I mean, we know that heaven's ours. We're not on this earth to establish our own little kingdom because it, that's an abomination to him. So whatever he wants, teach me thy ways, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth. Give me the courage not to turn back. Make me to see things in a level I've never seen them before that is beyond this human understanding so that I'm willing to go all the way. Give me the power and the courage to do that. I think that's what the Holy Spirit does. I think a lot of, in Pentecostal charismatic circles, if you can jump and holler and talk in tongues, and boy, you're there. Well, I think a lot of people do all that that didn't last. I don't care how fast you can beat your gums, there's nothing that's going to equal the fact that your, your life is submitted totally to him. Something has urged you to do that, and you've been willing to do it. To me, this is the empowering of the Holy Spirit. God can use you wherever he wants to, whenever he wants to. He can make you his mouthpiece in the, on the city square if he wanted to do that. Or he could make you his mouthpiece and kneel them beside the bed of your children, leading them to the Lord, or asking your wife or your husband to forgive you. He could do a lot of things like that and give you the power to do all those things. Let me tell you something else about the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, I give thanks for his guidance. Listen, there's so much more to say than what I'm saying. I'm trying to brief all this. But understand that the Holy Spirit's a big subject because it's talking about God, the way he does things. Take guidance. John 14, verse 26, he said, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. Did the Bible say that? Now, the Bible said the Spirit of God will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Could I say this then to a crowd of professing spirit-filled people? This is what he's doing. Amen. That he not only will cause you to want to hear his word, it's inspired by him. Second Timothy 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of the spirit, isn't it? It's all God breathed. God breathed it, but he said it's the spirit that gave it. So you're still talking about one God doing the same thing. He is the author of the word. He's the one that sent the word. He's the one when in Psalm 33, when he breathed his word, everything it created is created just by a word, and he breathed it out. And he breathed on the writers of Scripture over a 1,500-year period and from all different backgrounds and categories, and they put a word together by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit that agrees with itself from one end to the other. An absolutely supernatural book that the world calls foolishness. But this is the word that he's given to us, and this is what the Holy Spirit Jesus said when he comes The one thing he's going to do, and you better make it a priority in your life, he's going to guide you into all the truth. Now, he said in John 17, he said, thy word is truth. So what the Holy Spirit is about in making you, bringing you, and securing you is all about your relationship with the word because the Spirit of God inspires this. You cannot casually, with the Holy Spirit working in any of you, you cannot casually just hear the word and walk away from it. If you can, you need to question yourself, is he really in there? I want something that convicts me, and that's another point. Every time I meet, I want to have something inside of me dealing with me. Wouldn't you? I don't want to sit here in some lethargic deadness, instead of the rivers of living water, be some old dead swamp. I want something living and alive. I want something that is compelling. I want something that doesn't leave me alone and everything is not right. He gets on my case about it. That's the way it's supposed to be. Remember, God chose a bunch of misfits. If you don't think so, just turn around and introduce yourself to somebody. You think of the amount of work it's going to take to clean us all up? And I've been doing what I'm doing for longer. My hair was brown and Moby Dick was a minute when I started doing all this. And I have watched a lot of people never change. Many ministers that I've known have all gone. Most of them quit, gone back into the very thing they preached against. They're doing it. Many of them walked a 20 mile circle. It looked straight when they were walking because they're looking down. They couldn't see afar far off. And they made a 20 mile circle and they're back to where they were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You think, well, they preached about the Holy Spirit. They talked about it. Was, did they? I'm sure they did. Where was he? Was he there? I don't think God leaves you alone like that. I think when God makes his presence known in a man's life, he never leaves that man or woman alone. He's in there forever. And the one thing he's going to do, he's going to guide us into all the truth. Now, notice in John 16, In John 16, verse 12 and 13, he said, I have many more things to say to you right now. Jesus said to his disciples, I have more to tell you than what I've said. Would you read it that way? Something like that. I have many more things to say to you, but why don't you go ahead and say them? They can't what? They can't receive it. They couldn't say they haven't heard it, but Jesus knew just hearing it doesn't mean you've got it. Just being where it's taught doesn't mean you got it. He said, I have a lot to say that I have not said, but if I go ahead and say it, it won't bear the fruit that it's going to. How be it, verse 13, how be it? When he, the spirit of truth is come, what will he do? He will guide you into all the truth. What did he say in John 8, the truth would do? You shall know the truth. Truth will make you free. Would that be an evidence of being Christian? Being free, it sure would. Delivered. And he said, "Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he shall guide you, counsel you. An ever-present, inward voice talking to you. Not audibly, you can't hear it. You know, the Lord said, I'm glad, I'm glad he did. But I think more there's impressions in your heart. You think sometimes it's just you thinking. I know working on a sermon, I don't know, I just thought that up. Turns out it was the Lord. You think after some, so many years you get keen to that, and, and, and it's coming more and more to decipher or figure out what the Lord is saying when he comes he'll guide you into all the truth you know why that's important because he that started this good work is going to finish it and the only way it's going to get finished his way is for his spirit to have this access to your heart and your life he will guide you into all the truth and he not only will guide you into all the truth he said but you shall know the truth as I said in John you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free not only would he guide you into all truth, but at the end of the 13th verse, what did he say about the last days? The end time. He will show you what? Things to come. Now that's the end of the message. I'm not going to end right here, but that's the end of the message. Why would he show you things to come? The only people things to come will work for are those that are looking. Remember the verse we used Sunday about, Second Peter chapter 1, add to, add to, add to, add to. You remember that? All right. The Spirit of God said, he that lacketh these things is what? Blind and cannot see afar off. It wouldn't matter to him what the Holy Spirit said if it was afar off. He can't see it. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't collect his thoughts together to try to see what that is. He just can't see that. Consequently, he does not make preparation to have his life right when that time comes. And he's one of those that Jesus said, beware lest you be caught unawares. Listen, when God's speaking to us individually and as a church, take it to heart. It's a precious word. Because you're the ones that are designated to escape the tribulation that is coming on the whole world. That's what he said in Luke 13. So, guidance. Let me give you my favorite verse of Scripture tonight. Psalms 32. This is a wonderful, wonderful promise. Many times when I correspond with somebody to write back or say thank you, I always sign my name and write this Psalm 32, eight beside it because it's been a real treasure to me. But it's, my eyes were opened to it by the spirit of God. He said, I will instruct thee. Your Bible say that? Yes. And I will teach thee. What else? It said, I will instruct thee and teach thee What? The way which you should go. That's the question we all ask ourselves. What should I do? Well, what am I going to do about this? Lord, our church, well, what should I do about this? What am I going to do about this situation? Lord, how about, how about this building right here? Lord, what, how, what's, how, what's... And I've said, I tell you the truth, Lord, I don't know what to do except what man does, and I'm not about to do that. And I've gone back to this verse... A number of times, I will instruct you, praise God, and I will teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you or give advice to you with my eye upon you. I will counsel you and advise you. The Amplified Bible says with his eye upon you, he never takes it off of you. Why? Because he's in you. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Now you know how that's possible. He's in you. Isaiah said, he's graven you on the palms of his hands. He said, a mother with a nursing baby could forget her baby quicker than I could forget you. And because he picked you and he made you personally his, the work that he started in you, it takes the Holy Spirit to bring you to it. And they're going to work together and you're going to make it. Oh, you might cry along the way. But when you get to the end of it, you'll be so glad that the work that God did, he did. No chasing for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. And this is all the things that God shows us. This is the word that's opened up to us. Not Everybody. Worldly people see nothing. Blind people look for nothing. People that are not growing spiritually really don't care about tomorrow. They just want theirs right now. Why are you different? The Holy Spirit. There's not a day in your life or my life that we shouldn't have the, maybe the courage or the something to say, Lord, I want to thank you for your spirit. I want to thank you for you being in my heart and leading me and and guiding me and teaching me your ways and so forth. How you guide me and keep me from trouble and cause me to see things I can't see. I mean, there's one verse in the book of Acts where the apostles, you know, they were going to go all over the world with this message and the Holy Spirit forbade them to go to Asia. How did he do that? I don't know. But they knew it. Did he speak out loud? Were they just troubled in their heart and just knew something was wrong? Was it that kind of an inward feeling or sensation? I don't know. I don't know. They said in Acts 15, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. How did the Holy Ghost say that? Was it prophetic? Was it a prophecy? Could have been. God has ways to speak amongst his people that they understand that it was God. It's the strangers that don't understand it. But when God speaks, they often... Very well understand that. But he said in Acts chapter 10, you don't have to turn there. Remember Peter saw a vision and all this different kinds of animals came down in a a vision in a big net and there were unclean things in there. And a voice said, take and eat. And he said, I'm not going to eat that. I'm Jewish. I'm not about to eat that. That'd violate the law. That's unclean. All that stuff is unclean. I'm not going to eat it. See, he thought he was eaten, but what God was showing him was, back to that unclean thing, these are the Gentiles who had never been saved. They were considered to be unclean. Jews wouldn't have anything to do with them, and some of them won't today. But that's their problem. So Peter, realizing that it was the Holy Spirit, he went with them. He went to the house of Cornelius. And while he was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on the whole house where he was assembled. And they were all filled with the Spirit and said they spoke in tongues as from the beginning, like Peter and his crowd did. And then they said, what shall we do? He said, well, let baptize them. That's what they did. But you see, in Acts 11, the Jews at Jerusalem heard about Peter going to the Gentiles and said, what are you thinking? Come here, we want to talk to you. They They got together. You need to give an account of the fact that you went... Down there to that centurion, he's not even Jewish. He went to his house and spent time there, and we've heard some stories tell us about it. And Peter said in in his testimony, he, he told them about how the Holy Spirit made him to understand that he was to go to the house of Cornelius. He said it was the Holy Ghost that did this, and the evidence confirming that was the results. And while I was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on these people. And then the Jews realized then that God has poured out his spirit upon the Gentiles as he did on the Jews. As he did in the beginning with the Jewish people, so he did with the Gentiles. And that's when they begin to accept him somewhat. Somewhat. But this is how it all started. But it would have never happened if Peter had not been sensitive to the Holy Spirit, knowing the directions and the the directive voice that the Spirit would give him. Don't go there, go here. Don't go to Asia, go to that Philippian jailer. Well, that's how they wound up there. You read the book of Acts, how they were guided to all the places they went by the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your Spirit. We could use some of that ourselves. We sure could. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit. Next, about the fact that he teaches us, that he enlightens us shows us things to come. In John 14, and verse 25, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you while I was with you, but he said with well, a comforter, when he comes, he'll teach you all things. Let me say this to you about that. The Holy Spirit leaves nothing out that needs to be taught. There is no portion of Scripture that the Holy Spirit doesn't deem important or necessary for us to learn. We say that, well, I don't need all that. Well, you know, that was, that was, I don't need it. Even the things that are, you know, passed on today. There is a movement in Christian circles in some places where they want to portray, they want to practice the Jewish customs. They like to do the Passover meal and the cedar, and they like to have the empty chair for the guests, you know, the the Messiah, and they, they like to go through all the rituals and the routines. I think that by doing this, they feel like they're back to where God started everything, and they feel like that they're more spiritual doing that, and there's something about that. Paul wrote in the New Testament, he said, you cannot by practicing what has already been fulfilled and set aside as a way to be right with God. None of that makes you right. You can't by doing all those feast of tabernacles and observing all these holy days and the way that doesn't make you right. You may feel better about it. Look how much we you know we're deep. I remember a man came to here one time, a white haired man looked like Moses Came in here, and I sat down and talked to him. I don't know who he was. He wanted to talk. And he was into this very thing. And I remember thinking at that time, you really believe that being Jewish, Hebrewish, you really think that draws you closer to God? All of those things typified Christ, and he came, didn't he? He fulfilled all of that. Whatever they were saying, whatever picture you were to see, he took care of it. He did it. And as a means of being right with God, that has been set aside. You cannot, by practicing that law, make yourself right with the Lord. The Messiah has come and established a new and living way. It's now personal. between you and him. It's all on faith. You can't see him. You don't hear his voice. You've got to believe. And unless you're willing to live that way, there's nothing else you can do to make yourself right with God. There's a lot of people like that. They like something to do. They like something they can follow after, something they can feel good about. Because walking by faith is too hard. Because that means what you hear is what you do. He that knoweth to do good, but doesn't do it to him it's sin. Oh, I don't like that. Old Testament saints could keep the law without any feelings for God at all. It was just required. It was expected, and you did it, and you waited till sundown so you could start selling your stuff. And they, you know, they just, Malachi said, you know, what his accusation against the Jewish people were, he said, you say, you know, those of you that hate me amongst yourselves, you say, what a weariness it is. We have to do all these things and kill these good animals, and, you know, the priests get them. They get to eat with our best animals. Why should they get it? They're too lazy to work, I think. They have all these Obscene things to say. They didn't have a heart for the Lord. But I'll guarantee you, you can't walk by faith without something between you and God. You can attend church. You can be involved in church activities. But you're not going to walk with the Lord without something deeper than just that. And this is the way we show ourselves approved unto God. Obey his word. He said the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will teach you. He will guide you, he will equip you, he will inspire you. These are the things that he says that he will do when he comes. And this is the kind of teaching that he will bring you. Turn to Ephesians 1. I hope you know this one by heart. I hope it's underlined and got smudge marks on it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, he says, My prayer for you folks in Shelbyville, I'm sorry, for you folks in Ephesus is this. I pray... For you, the church, these are spirit-filled people now. Remember that these are Holy Ghost-baptized people. In verse 17, he says, I pray that God will do something. You know what he prayed for saints for? That God would grant unto them a spirit of wisdom and what? Revelation in the knowledge of him. Does it say that? That God would give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your heart being what? Enlightened. It means illuminated or opened up. So that now what was once unclear or hazy or smoky or not, clear and certain, now become so that you can see it now. This is the work, one of the main works of the Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to see the truth the way the truth was meant to be seen. Not only show you things to come and teach you, but to open your eyes so that you can see it. You won't need to run and ask everybody, well, what do you think it says? He'll show it to you. First John 2 and verse 20 said, you have an unction." from the Holy One. Remember that? And the anointing which abides in you, he said, shall teach you. What's the anointing? It's the Holy Ghost. It's what he does. The world doesn't have it. Religion doesn't have it. You can't get it at a seminary. It's not for sale. You can't find it. You can't. There's no system of man in the world that can teach you how to be anointed. They can teach you to shout. They can teach you to quiver and shake and you can do all that. But nobody can teach you how to be anointed. And yet God can take the least person in this room, the most ill-equipped person in this room, and anoint them with a word and just floor us all. Wow. Remember they said to Jesus, we never heard a man speak like this. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Joseph's boy? Where did he learn these gracious words? Where, where did this come? It's the anointing. It's the anointing. When he returned from his temptation, the Bible said he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he came, and when he began to speak, whoo, boom, things happened. That's the way it should be. It's the way it's supposed to be. But he will enlighten us. He'll open our eyes. If he doesn't, folks, we're wasting our time here. We may be exercising ourselves about good things, but unless the Holy Spirit is here opening our eyes, we're getting nothing. And for those people who say, you know, I don't get anything out of this, I don't get anything out of that, maybe maybe you can't. Maybe you can't. I don't get anything out of what he's saying. Maybe you can't. Maybe you can't. Maybe for you it's not going to be possible. Didn't Jesus say, Blessed are your eyes at sea, and blessed are your ears because they hear? Didn't God on occasion shut the ears of the people that they could not hear? They heard the sound of words. They did they, it's like a blind man. They didn't know what it said. It didn't change their life. Nothing to it. But when the Holy Spirit comes, you're God's you into all the truth he will teach you. He will show you things to come. When the end comes, we should be ready. Now I don't know if everybody will be. You got to have oil. Not everybody will. But there's something that comes only from God that keeps our lights burning. that keeps us looking and seeing. And without it, well, it doesn't look good. Another thing that the Holy Spirit does, and I want to Praise God for this and thank Him for this as we begin to close. Turn to Romans chapter 8. He enables us in our prayer life. I could teach a long time about this, I'll try to brief it. He teaches us about our prayer life, or He enables us and helps us pray. For He said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 that we don't know how to pray about a lot of things we need to pray about, we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. Does it say that? Where is the Spirit? Is he up in heaven somewhere? Or is he inside of you? Well, let me read it. For the Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings. Is heaven groaning or are you groaning? You are. Spirit of God in you. Jesus once groaned in the Spirit. Is there something said about that? I mean, is that a, some kind of an understandable language? Must have been. Otherwise, the intercession of the Holy Spirit within you is nothing but noise. But there's some times that you get, like in the garden, I think, when Jesus was pressing in. Blood vessels burst. Sweat mingled with blood began to fall on the ground. The first of seven times he shed his blood right there in the garden. You talk about intense. He was. Me and you were hanging in the balance. And he had a decision to make three times. You know, can't you all pray? And we see him over here, and he's back over here. Pray and back over. But when he got it all settled, he walked out of there, never looked back. But you see, whenever when we talk about prayer, he said the Holy Spirit helps us. I don't know how many times I get phone calls or a letter opened up from somebody or one of you all call. And don't start calling me. But when people call, when I get through talking to them, I pray for them. You say, well, what do you pray for? Well, I usually pray in the Spirit. I mean, just hold the phone and just pray in the Spirit. Because I know that's always right. No man by the Spirit can pray wrong. Now, you all should know that. When the Spirit of God is allowed to release himself and in, in your willingness to give him your vocal cords and you begin to respond to whatever he gives you to say and you begin to say it or you begin to let him have his way in your life, you never pray wrong. The worldly church out there says that's foolishness. How do you know what you're saying? Well, it, go to 1 Corinthians 14. Here's what it says about what I'm saying. He said in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 2, talking about praying in the Spirit or the Spirit praying. When I talk about praying in Spirit, I'm talking about praying in tongues. Because here's where it says that. He says, for he that speaketh in an, un, says unknown here, but let's, we'll just use that. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men. So we know this is not a church gift, is it? I'm not speaking to a congregation that needs an interpretation. It's just me and God. Are we here? Right. He that speaketh in a tongue speaketh not. You talking about your prayer language here? Speaketh not unto men, but unto God. He said, "For no man understands him." So, like somebody I heard years ago say, when somebody said, "How do you know what you're saying when you're praying?" Whatever that way you pray, he said, I'm not talking to myself. I don't know what I'm saying. God could give me an an interpretation, I would know, but I don't need that to do it. I just know that it's the right thing to do. Even praying over your food, you can pray over your food that way if you don't have somebody there that doesn't know what you're doing. But he said, he that speaketh in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. No man understands him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh. What does it mean to speak in the spirit? Well, now, how many people can't? I got it all when I got saved. I doubt that you did. You could have, but I doubt that you did. You got what your church told you you should get. You didn't get what the Bible said because there's more. I don't have enough time to go through all this, but it's a lively subject. It's a wonderful subject. And verse 4, he that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. He builds himself up. I think you need that. But he that prophesies, edifies the whole church. I want you to see that. He that speaks in a tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God in the Spirit. He speaks mysteries because it's hidden. A mystery is hidden. You don't know what you're saying because you're not talking to yourself. You're not talking to a church. It doesn't need to be interpreted. It's not a gift of tongues. There's diverse kinds of tongues, known tongues at the Pentecost, unknown tongues like here. There's the tongues of men. There's the tongues of angels. There's such a stigma that's been, the devil doesn't want you talking in tongues either because he doesn't know what you're saying either. How could he attack your prayer if he doesn't know what you're saying? How could he come against you to stop the prayer you prayed from coming to pass if he doesn't know what you're saying? And yet Christians Charismatic still don't pray in tongues. There's people in this church that haven't prayed in the Spirit in a week, maybe a month. And you should do it every day, all the time. It's called divine communication. I can talk to God with my understanding. As he said over in verse 14, look at verse 14, if I pray in an unknown tongue, what's praying? If I pray in the Spirit, what, how am I praying? I'm praying in tongues. Whether that suits anybody or hair lips the whole world, it's the truth. It he that prayeth in a tongue prays in the spirit. God's word says it. And he goes on to say, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. I don't know what I'm saying, but... I will pray, verse 15, so there's time that I'll pray with the Spirit, and then there's time that I will pray with the understanding. For me, it'd be in English. You got two ways to pray. One of them, you pour your heart out with what you know. You're talking to God about a, something that you want him to deal with. Then there's times you don't know what to pray for. You don't even know how to pray about it. Don't know how to pray for a brother or sister going through a trial or, or somebody whose life is in peril or going on a journey, and you don't know much about it where they are, what they're doing. You pray in the spirit by, why? Because God knows what they need to be prayed for about. And the only people on this earth that can do that are those who have received the spirit. I didn't say those that have joined the church. I'm talking about those that have received the Holy Spirit. It's a distinct, separate experience from being born again. Uh, again, there's times that it's happened at the same time, but not very often. Boy, there's a whole lot of teaching. Maybe we ought to come back someday and teach on that. But we're told to pray in the Spirit. In, in Ephesians 6, part of your warfare is praying in the Spirit. Praying always in the Spirit, watching thereinto, being keen spiritually, watching, thinking. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your Spirit. Look at what you're capable of now. Look at what's possible with you. And in closing, I thank God for his spirit because of conviction. For going out of here with something going, man, I need to deal with that. How would you know to deal with anything unless God showed it to you? Without the Holy Spirit, you could say, boy, I need that. Or you could say, well, that's his opinion. That's That's what he thinks. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, you know, I'm, I'm not that bad. And I don't need that. But not with spirit active in you. Not when the Holy Spirit is doing what he said he would come to do. You won't say that. Because he will convict in the world of sin, of unrighteousness, of being lazy and indifferent, of not even trying. He convicts us of that unless you're not his. Unless there's something lacking here. I hate to think he doesn't want to, because I know he does that. But I know that in John chapter 16, talking about the Holy Spirit, he said he'll convict you of your sins. That stuff you watched the other night, that word you used today, that article you read, that look on the computer, woo, 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 uh-oh, he'll convict you of that if you're his didn't say you're not capable of messing up. You are capable of messing up. But the Holy Spirit is very capable of convicting you of what you did wrong, too. And when you turn to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, then you've let the Holy Spirit have his way in your life to turn you away from sin. Otherwise, you have to be judged for that. And the last one is the one I'm closing with is preparation. Spirit of God shows you things to come for one reason, so you can get ready. So you can, like the bride in Revelation 19, so you can make yourself ready. Why would he show you something afar off if, it, if there wasn't a purpose in warning you or telling you you need to get ready? Why would he do that? Well, he wouldn't. If he said, this is going to happen and this is coming, darkness is coming on this earth, there's going to be this happen, and that happened, the world, evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. So you better make sure that you're not surrounded by that. You're not playing with that. You're not a part of that. You better eliminate stuff in your life that God's going to judge because the end is coming. You know why he would tell you that? so you would clean your life up and you would let go of some stuff and get ready for his coming because if you don't he will come like a thief in the night and you'll be left here I remember years ago a guy who was in the manifested sons told me that he was going to stay here and cause tribulation I remember thinking you are totally completely outside of your mind Those days are so bad that Jesus said, pray that you shall be worthy to escape all these things that are coming. The reason he warns us is so that we'll get ready. And if you're ready, you'll escape. If you're not, you'll be here and think, well, what happened? I thank God for the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight in Jesus' name for all the good work you're doing. All the love you show to us, all those times in the day that you're on us and talking to us and dealing with us, it seems like, Lord, no matter what we're doing or where we are or what's going on, we can hear you talking to us. We can sense your presence. Make us to live close to that, Lord, to find our pleasure in you, to find our joy in you. Make us the way we should be and ask you to deal with our hearts in Jesus' name.